Well, good morning. Can everyone hear me in the back there? Because I, I decided to use a stand rather than holding my hand because I like to talk with my hands. Um, well, this last couple of weeks, we've been going through the, uh, the message series about grit. And if you were here the first week, you remember Aaron told us that grit had three components, passion, persistence, and patience. For me, when I think of grit, I'm going to age myself a little bit. The first thing that comes to my mind is Rooster Cogburn. True Grit, the movie, right? Some of y'all know that, some of you don't. It's back when they made G-rated movies. Um, anyway, he was this guy, kind of surly, whiskey-drinking sheriff who meted out the law. And he was a singular task kind of guy, very binomial kind of person. And uh, just he didn't want to shoot him because that would just make him mad. But that, that was a Hollywood kind of character, right? That's not a real character. But I want to share with you a couple of real Americans who exhibit this aspect of grit. The first one I want to tell you about is a guy by the name of Louis Zamperini. Maybe you read the book. It's called Unbroken. If you haven't, it's a phenomenal read. He lived a life that I can't even begin to comprehend. And just to give you a little bit of a synopsis of his life, in 1936, he ran at the Olympics, which happened to be in Berlin. There's another famous American who ran in those Olympics. It was Jesse Owens, and it's also a phenomenal story to read about. But Zamperini ran in the Olympics, and um, he didn't win, but his last lap was such a phenomenal lap, and it was world record pace, and it was a long-distance run. And his run was so phenomenal that Hitler asked to shake his hand. And he actually touched the hand of Hitler. Four years later he would be involved in World War II, and he flew in big bomber planes. And uh, he was out on a mission, on a flying mission, a search, search mission. His plane had a mechanical failure. His plane goes down. Most of the crew dies. He almost drowns because he gets wrapped up in cables and what have you. He somehow survives with two other guys, and all they have is little one-man rafts for three men. They were adrift at sea for 47 days. They had a few candy bars with them, and one of the guys in a panic moment ate all the candy bars while the other two guys were sleeping. They drank rainwater when they could get it. They found a bird on, the, on one of the rafts, and they killed that bird, and they didn't have campfire, so they had to eat the bird raw, and they would use remnants of the bird to catch other little fish to eat the fish. During that 47-day period, Sharks came onto their raft and they would use their oars to beat the sharks away on more than one occasion. On one occasion, they saw a plane and they were like, Eureka, it's a plane, we're out of here. They're waving at the plane, they got the plane's attention with a flare gun, turned out to be a Nazi plane. Shot at them, tried to kill them on several drive bys, but didn't manage, but did knock out one of the rafts. So now they're even in a worse place. One of the guys ends up dying. They have to cut him loose, just let him go at sea. On top of that, they get caught in a hurricane, two survivors, in this little raft. And their hurricane at night, 15 to 30 foot swells of water being tossed around in the darkness. And he tells a story that having survived all that, after the hurricane, there was this beautiful sunset. And it was so beautiful, and he was so at peace, and he said, 
God, if you get me out of this, I'll give you my life. Well, shortly thereafter, he saw a boat. Eureka, we're saved again. Turned out to be a Japanese naval vessel. He was taken as a prisoner with, prisoner with his buddy to become a POW. He endured such horrific treatment, I can't explain. There was one particular guy who ended up being on 40 worst war criminals in the war list that picked on Zamperini personally because he was the commander of the POW camp. He knew that Zamperini had run in the Olympics, so that made him even more a target. He did unbelievably cruel things to this guy Zamperini. The worst of, or one of the examples of the worst was he had all the POWs get in a line and Zamperini stood there and he held a gun to another POW's head and said, everybody hit him in the face. And they didn't want to do it and Zamperini would say, go ahead, it's okay, hit me. This is the kind of unbelievable, horrific abuse that he endured, endured as a POW. But he says, I continue to pray every day, God, if you get me out of this, I'll give you my life. Well, eventually the Japanese were defeated. He was freed. I mean, it's, it's a, you read the story, it's just phenomenal and unbelievable, everything that goes on. He comes back to the U.S., but he doesn't give his life to God. He gets married, but he's tormented by everything he's been through, particularly as a POW. He has a drinking problem. He's tormented at night in his dreams. He's constantly having these dreams of the main tormentor, this evil person who was who was so abusive on him, and he'd wake up at night thinking he, he was fighting this guy at night. And one night he wakes up with his wife screaming because in his dream mind, he's fighting this guy and he's finally starting to win the fight and he wakes up to having his hands around his wife's neck. And he, he gets involved in alcohol and he just, he's miserable, but he didn't give his life to God. His wife then gets involved with this crazy guy named Billy Graham who has revivals going on on the West Coast. And he, she starts going to these revivals and telling her husband, Louie, you got to go, you got to go. And he's like, no, because he's given up on God. Can you blame him? And he feels like he's God's rejected child, even though he came from a faithful family. And he has all kinds of doubts about God and denials about God. And if there is a God, certainly he doesn't have anything good for Louie. Eventually, he would go to Billy Graham's revival. And I'm going to read you a quote as he's sitting there in this revival saying, why am I here? What's the point? God has nothing for me. And he heard Billy Graham say this, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And I, Louis, sat straight up in my seat. How had Billy Graham known what was on my mind? And then he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. And Louis Zamperini's life changed. He became a Christian and he did give his life to God. He spent the rest of his life working with kids, helping them in running and what have you because he had been in the Olympics. But the most amazing part of the story is he went back to Japan and for all of those POW, or people that had abused him as a POW, as many as he could find, he found them. And you know what he did? He gave them a hug and said, I forgive you. I have a picture of him. There it is. You see it. See what it says? To persevere is important to everybody. Don't give up. Don't give in. There's always an answer for everything. 
It's amazing to me, but I think he has an authority to tell us that don't give up, don't give in, because he walked the walk and he lived it, right? I got a quote that he uh, gave us too. Yet a part of you still believes you can fight and survive no matter what your mind knows. It's not so strange. Where there's still life, there's still hope. What happens is up to God. There's another American that I want to tell you about, and his name is Lopez Lemong, and his book is titled Running for My Life. Lopez Lemong is a Sudanese lost boy. When he was six years old, when he was in church with his family, Muslim devils came in and abducted him from his family, ripped him from his mother's arms, and took him with the intent of turning him into a young warrior, which they would do. They would kidnap these little boys and turn them into warriors. He's six years old, and he tells the story of being pushed into a tent, a small tent, a crowded tent, with something like 50 or more boys, young boys, once a day, maybe, they would throw in a bowl of rice for all of them. Maybe occasionally they got to go out and use the restroom. But they were in this tent, in the heat, constantly, on their own, with boys dying around him. Well, eventually, by some miracle, he, at six years old, and two other boys would escape their captors and walk to Kenya to a refugee camp. Sometime look at a map of Sudan to Kenya. Something like six, seven hundred miles at best if he went the short route. At six years old, somehow he makes it to the refugee camp and he's there for ten years. And the conditions are not as threatening as they were before, but they're equally bad. No food, he's on his own, doesn't, no idea where his family is, and he spends ten years there. He tells a story of the United Nations workers would throw their old trash into a pit and sometimes there would be food in there and they, the boys would wait for the United Nations workers to throw away their trash and dive into the pit to see if they could find food. And then they would take it back to each other and if anybody found food, they'd share it with each other. For 10 years like that, eventually he was adopted by a Christian family, came to the U.S., and it's, a, again, you got, it's actually a funny story for him once you get past that tragedy of all that he came from. He grew up in a village with a hutch. And now he's in the United States in New York City going to McDonald's. Totally different lifestyle. But he ends up being a track star. And he goes on to graduate from college. And he runs for our Olympic team in Beijing Olympics. He said... One of his greatest honors was that his team members elected him to carry the American flag into the ceremonies. It was a great honor for him. I have a picture of him. That's him next to uh, Bush 43. Listen to the quote that he says after all that he had endured. I walked down the track beaming with pride. God had brought me so far through war, through eating garbage, and running to forget about my empty stomach. No, ma no matter what I went through, God was always with me. He had always had this moment planned for me through both the good times and the bad, 
from the killing fields of Sudan to these Olympic Games and back again. I, I give you these two examples because their stories and their life are so unbelievable and that the fact that there's a God component in it, how Lopez Lamont could say God was always with him when he was six years old, ripped from his family, he was eventually reunited with his mother and his siblings, brought them to the U.S. But God was always with him. When folks like this speak of not surrendering or tell me that God is always with us, they speak with an authority because they have walked the walk. This is not an abstract idea for them. It is real. And this morning, I want to look at the Bible and look a little bit deeper because what I want to know is, how do I get that grip? Where does the passion and the patience and the persistence come from me? How can I have that? Because in my world that I think my problems are this big, compared to these folks, I don't have any problems. But yet, I have some challenges in life, hardships in life. And so I want to look at that. And we have a recording, uh, a video. Let's watch the video real quick. came the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying release those men and the jailer reported these words to Paul saying the chief magistrates have sent to release you therefore come out now and go in peace but Paul said to them they have beaten us in public without trial men who are Romans and have thrown us into prison and now are they sending us away secretly no indeed but let them come themselves and bring us out the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans, and they came and appealed to them, and when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. In attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received the pledge from Jason and all the others, they released them. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. So we're going to look at Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, but this is the, 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 the background, the, the, the context of what was going on. And can you put the map up? 
Okay, this is a map of Paul's second uh, missionary journey. And you see that red line. You see where it starts down in Jerusalem and goes all the way up and back around? 2,700 miles, roughly. 2,700 miles. Three years. Raise your hand if you think it was on paved sidewalks and there was water stops and, you know, nice people there encouraging him on. You know, no, that's not the case. In fact, we see that in Philippi, the people who are the religious leaders of the, of the area wrongly accuse him, falsely accuse he and Silas, beat them up, throw them in a prison, and around about midnight, they're singing the praises to God. And an earthquake occurs, the doors fly open, the prison guard is woken, He's going to kill himself because the consequences for a Roman guard of letting prisoners go is death. And he's like, better just do it myself. And Paul says, but wait. We're still here. That Roman guard would go on to say, well, what can I do to be saved, this thing that you have? And he would take Paul and Silas to his home where his whole family would become Christians they would celebrate, they would tend to Paul and Silas's wounds, and after all this, guess what happens? They do what I would do, lickety-split, get out of town. Obviously, the earthquake is a sign, the doors are open, stay here is more troubles, right? No, they don't do that. They walk themselves back into the prison and wait for the morning. And when morning comes, the guys who had ordered them to beat up be beat up, send more guards and say, okay, you're good to go, see ya. And Paul says, whoa, 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 hold your horses. We're Roman citizens. And the reason he's saying that is because they lived under this thing called Pax Romana, and as Roman citizen, Roman citizens had certain rights, and one of them was you couldn't, you couldn't kill one, you certainly couldn't beat one for no good reason. So now Paul is using this, the law that the accusers were wrongly accusing him of to stand forward and say, no, now we're going to talk about the magistrates. You want to live under the law, let's talk about it. Well, the magistrates figure that out and realize they're in a pickle because if this gets back to the big cheeses, they're in trouble for having wronged a Roman citizen. So then they beg him to leave. And he does. And three things come out of this for me. Number one is, again, we're talking about somebody who can speak from authority, right? He has walked the walk, 2,700 miles for three years, half on land, half on boat. But the other thing I see is integrity. Paul walked with integrity. When he goes back into the prison, certainly it meant that he was ensuring that that Roman guard wasn't going to endure consequences for him having escaped. But he, more importantly, is able to stand up the next day to the accusers who had wrongly accused him under the law and say, let's talk about the law, the law of the land. And he can do that. We can say, well, yeah, it's the right thing to do. But he can do that because he lives under a higher law, God's law. The other thing I see with Paul is then he goes 100 miles to Thessalonica. 100 miles. <laughs> How about after church we all hike to College Station in the heat? In the, anyway, you get my point. 
But he gets to Thessalonica, and it says, as was his custom for three Sabbaths, he goes into the synagogue. Paul has discipline. We see in Berea, he goes to Berea, same thing, as was his custom, he goes into the synagogue. And he go, this discipline that he has is independent of whether he's going to have a warm or cold or no reception at the synagogue. He is disciplined. And I believe that his discipline and his integrity factor into this authority that he has to speak to the Thessalonians as well as you and I about what it means to have grit and where passion and persistence and patience comes from. You know, if, if we talk about hardships and we kind of remove the church facade thing where we see each other all the time and say, how's it going? Great. How about you? Great. And we all know the answer is Jesus loves you and God is good all the time. All the time God is good. And we remove that kind of church facade thing and we talk about hardships and we talk about really what happens to us and really what goes on emotionally and some of the thoughts we have. I'm going to tell you a couple that and maybe this is just me, but I'm going to tell you a couple that happened in my real world. One of them is when I'm having really hardship, God quit on me. He's rejected me. He's turned his back on me. He's not helping me anymore. Another one is that I'm forlorn. Forlorn means to be alone. God's not with me. I'm just telling you real thoughts. And the last one is, you're just not good enough. What you're enduring is because had you been better, God would do more for you. You're unworthy. See, when hardships come to, into our lives... We start having these crazy thoughts. And it's absolutely normal. Because we're human. And when I start having these thoughts that God has abandoned me, that I'm alone, and I'm not worthy, the next thing that happens is it begins to manifest in my behavior. So I'm no longer disciplined, my integrity's out the window, and I have no authority. Because I have compromised my integrity, and I've forgotten about discipline. And that's what was going on with the Thessalonians. They'd lost their discipline, they lost their integrity, and they'd put their hope in crazy things. Let's look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul and Silvanus, which is, by the way, Silas, that's just his Roman name, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. So let's break this down a little bit. So you know that Paul and 
Sylvanus, Silas, and Timothy are the ones writing this, right? Let's look at verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. First thing I want to point out to you, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. This is not saying we should. What Paul is saying is, considering what you folks are enduring, and considering how you're living, even if I didn't want to, I'd still have to speak up and give thanks to God for you. I'm compelled to do so. It just comes out of my heart. I can't help it to give thanks to God for you. And the reason he gives thanks is because their faith is greatly enlarged and their love for one another is growing even greater. And the reason that he can thank God for that is because what Paul teaches us over and over and over again is that faith comes from God moving in our lives. That the Holy Spirit, through the word of God, creates faith in us. And if the faith is growing in these folks, he's saying, thank you, God. And one of the other things we can see is that faith always precedes love. Sometimes in our romanticized Hollywood culture, we turn love into a false idol and we put it too much priority before God. Faith is a fruit of the Spirit, along with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. Faith happens and love flows from that. And Paul is thanking God because he is doing this among the Thessalonians. And Paul has a purpose in telling them that he's thanking God. Because sometimes we think what? God has abandoned me, I'm alone, and I'm unworthy. And Paul is presenting to them the truth that God has not abandoned them. In fact, it's evidenced by their faith and their increasing love that God is actually in their midst working, not abandoning them. Let's look at 2 Thessalonians chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Speaking proudly to the other churches. Paul has purpose in saying this, that for however many churches there were at the time, he would speak proudly he would boast about the Thessalonians that as they were suffering and having hardship, God was increasing their faith and growing them in love. And there's a purpose in this too, and it's twofold. One, it tells the other churches at the time, you're not alone. You're not forlorn. What you are going through is very similar to what the Thessalonians are going through. Your hardship's not only you. You're not alone. In fact, we are unified in Christ with all of God's children from the beginning of time to the end of time. And for all those who have suffered before us and had hardships before us and are having them now and will ever have them, we're unified in Christ and you're not alone. 
There are two words here, persecution and affliction. I want to just pause on those for a minute. Persecution is being wrongly treated physically, emotionally, verbally because of your relationship with Jesus. Affliction, on the other hand, is an Old Testament word. The first time we see it is in Exodus when the Bible talks about how Pharaoh was afflicting the Israelites. You remember he just kept asking for more and more and more and punishing them. So one of the things we can, we can learn about affliction is that sometimes the hardships in our life are not the direct result of our own sin. Sometimes the hardships in our life is just evil in this world. Sometimes it's the devil himself. But it's not always as a result of our own sin. And we know that's possible because Jesus was afflicted for our sakes. Look at this text from Isaiah. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. If Jesus, who knew no sin, can be afflicted, it's possible that the hardships that you are enduring in your life is not the direct result of your sin. Let's get back to the, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, verse 5. This, these persecutions and afflictions, and God growing your faith and increasing you in love is plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are indeed suffering. As God continues to increase your faith and grow you in your faith and your love grows greater along with the rest of the fruit of the Spirit, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, perseverance of faith, that's the evidence of God continuing to work in your life and showing that you are worthy, that God has declared you worthy as his child. Well, I hope you're hearing a little bit of encouragement. But I still haven't answered the question, well, then how do I get this grip thing? How do I get the patience and the the peace and the, oh, sorry, the, <laughs> another P, patient, patience, passion, and persistence. How do I get those? Well, we, we skip on to uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith and truth. This is a wonderful text, loaded text. And the first thing I want to point you to is beloved by the Lord. Maybe if you were here, the last time I gave a message, you remember I said capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D is your Bible referring to Yahweh, and that's God the creator. That's the holy and sacred name of God that the, today the Jews won't even say because if you don't say it the right way, the consequence is death. This is capital L, small cap O, small cap R, small cap D. And when you see that in your Bible, it's pointing you to Jesus in the Trinity, but specifically the Christ. And Christ is his title, 
and the title for the one who purchased us for his own self to be his children. We were purchased on the cross by the sacrifice of his blood. Beloved by the Lord. Paul is saying, you've been purchased. You belong to the Lord. And for what purpose? Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. From the beginning doesn't mean when time started. God's not bound by time and space. It means from eternity. And that there's never been a moment from eternity onward until today until whenever time stops that God hasn't chosen you. From the beginning he chose you. In the Lord. And the culmination of his choosing us from eternity is Jesus coming when we were helpless and hopeless and dead in our transgressions and still yet his enemies. And he died for us on the cross to purchase us and make us his own. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world from eternity. That we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. According to the kind intention of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Are you hearing when you were chosen? Are you hearing that there's never been a day that you weren't chosen? And there'll never be a day that you're not chosen? And if that's not enough for you, let's look at what Jesus said himself in John. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. And my hope and my prayer is that what you're hearing is that you were chosen from the beginning, beloved by the Lord. And what we were chosen for was salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And so I want to talk about this word sanctification a little bit. What does that mean? And it's literally the, the ongoing work that God does in us every day, all day long. And that's always been his plan from the beginning. But here's a definition for you. There we go. In its wide sense, sanctification comprises all that the Holy Spirit does to separate man from sin and making him again God's own so that he may live for God and serve him. It includes the bestowal of faith, justification, sanctification as the inner transformation of man, perseverance of faith. 
and the complete renewal on Judgment Day. That's from one of our, um, what do I want to call that? One of our big books, Francis Pieper, okay? And the point here is that this sanctification is God separating us from our sin to make us his own, creating faith in us so that we would exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, which includes love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness, self-control and perseverance of faith. Because you were chosen from the beginning. And through the faith that God has created in you, you have the fruit of the Spirit. It's where this passion and patience and persistence comes from. No, I said it wrong. Passion, persistence, and patience. Yes, I did say it right. <laughs> Be patient with me. You have it. It's in you. God has bestowed it on you. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14. It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. We are all called to be the glorious possession of Jesus. He paid the price for us on the cross and he purchased us and declared himself our king and we his children. And Paul gives us a little ad admonition here. When it says, stand firm and hold to the traditions, it's not talking about religious practices or things that people do all the time. The traditions here are speaking of the gospel. That's why it says, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us, because remember the Bible hadn't been written at this time. And he's saying, remember the good news that we told you about Jesus when I showed up at the synagogue those three days? Hold on to that. Because that's where your passion, your persistence, and your patience comes from. That's where grit is built from. Well, I had another reading from Jesus in John chapter 17, but I'll let you go look at it yourself. It's his great prayer. And when you read that prayer in the context of having been chosen from the beginning, beloved by the Lord, you see what it is that he prays for us to the Father. And there is a possessiveness there that we are his. In Isaiah 43, it says, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. And you're mine. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, those whom I hold in my hand will not be snatched from it. And those whom the Father holds in his hand will not be snatched from it. Are you getting a sense of who you belong to? Well, I hope I've given you some truth to show you that you do have passion and persistence and patience through the fruit of the Spirit that is in you as a function of your faith that God has created in you. But I also want to say, some of us, the hardships we're having, maybe, it's because we've been living independent of God. We've kind of decided to do our own thing. 
It's very natural for us. We've all done it. But sometimes the hardships are because of the things that we are doing. God is not the author of evil. If I've got hardships in my life, it's not God giving those to me. Yes, God permits or promotes everything, but God is not the author of evil. (coughs) And if you're conscious right now saying, well, maybe I am living independent of God. Maybe I have kind of been doing my own thing. And maybe I have been self-destructive. If you're hearing that, beloved by the Lord, God chose you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And my prayer is that you would receive the loving forgiveness of God in your heart and repent. See, we cannot begin to make healthy choices, better choices, different choices until we confront the brutal truth of our lives. And if the brutal truth is that my hard times and the hardship that I'm going through is because of the decisions I've been making and I've been doing this, good news. God chose you from the beginning. And God would call you to himself. And he will pull you to himself. Bad news is God still chose you. And if you continue to go in the same errant way, life will get harder. Because God's not going to give up on you. God will not quit. Some of you may be enduring hardship, but living under false guilt. What false guilt is, is a voice somewhere telling you that you kind of are unworthy and this is really on you. And, you know, yes, God's loving and everything, but what you've done, it's just too much. And that who you are is what you do. That's false guilt. Because you're beloved by the Lord. And Jesus purchased you on the cross. And you may have hard times, but likely you're being afflicted. And maybe the hardships you're enduring, and you're thinking, I'm at the end of my rope here. My faith is like a candle in a hurricane right now. And my suggestion? Let go of the rope. Because God is faithful when we are without faith. God chose you from the beginning, beloved by the Lord. And there's never been a moment, there's never been a day, there's never been an hour or a minute or a second or a nanosecond when God didn't choose you. And the last thing I want to say is for all of us who have been chosen, who are beloved in the Lord. Paul gives us a wonderful example of how to talk to people who are going through hardship. And the first thing he does, you remember, I thank God for you. He shares his heart for them in spite of their circumstances. And he shares what it is that he speaks to God about to them. So maybe if there's somebody in your life who's really going through some tough times right now, maybe you share your heart with them. How you see them through God's eyes. And the other thing is that he unequivocally 
proclaims to them the gospel and the good news that God chose them from the beginning and they're beloved by the Lord. So if you see somebody who's drowning, share your heart with them. Give them the good news of Jesus having chosen them. <coughs> well, we quickly approached the 4th of July. Can't believe that, it's already here. But what a great privilege we have that we live in this great country where our forefathers declared independence from the tyranny of local magistrates and kings and sheikhs and monarchies and oligarchies and all the things that still go on in this world and all the isms that would deny us the right to worship our Heavenly Father the way that we are called to worship. But I also know this, that this great freedom and liberty we have wouldn't exist if it weren't for people like Abel, you served in the Army, right? My dad served in the Air Force. Who else served military-wise? I thought so. And we have relatives. My mom has two brothers. And we all have family members who served in the military, right? So that we can have these continued liberties and freedoms. We have law enforcement friends and family. I have a cousin who's a police officer in San Antonio, another one who was assistant police chief at HPD. We have friends and family who are firemen. And I just think maybe we can take a note to thank those who protect us so that we can celebrate, especially on, as your fireworks start going off in your neighborhood, you might need a fireman. But we're thankful that all of those who from the beginning God chose to serve in a way that you and I have not had to so that we can still have the liberty and freedoms that we have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just give you thanks and praise that you have chosen us from the beginning in the Lord. And that because you chose us for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith and truth, that we do have grit, that we do have persistence and patience and passion that you have bestowed upon us and all the other goodness that you've given us. So we thank you and we praise you and we worship you for you alone are our God and we belong to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.